I hope you're excited for Easter week. Uh, we all should be. This is the rock of our faith, the foundation of our faith. Uh, but today, we're going to have a little bit more serious tone from the text that we're looking at in Luke chapter 9, and as we consider Palm Sunday and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and really what that meant. So I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in together. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the worship we've already experienced today, where we can get our mind and heart focused on you, a worthy and loving God. You have done everything that is needed and necessary, even more so, more than we deserve, more than we could ever ask, Father, to extend your love to a broken and dying world. So, Father, today as we open up your word, I pray that our minds would not be moved towards afternoon events and all the things we have to do this week, but in these moments, Father, we would focus in on your words to us through your scripture. And Father, that your spirit would speak. Challenge us today. Challenge our hearts. But even in the midst of that challenge, fill us with hope. And Father, we're praying for you to speak even now. In Jesus' name, amen. A few of you might have heard this story. I shared it at Thrive not too long ago that I ran across recently. Historical story. It was the early morning of October 16th, 1946. <clears throat> a Lutheran minister, Henry Jarek, visited the few members of his parish in Nuremberg, Germany. The men who showed up to his church were not your typical congregation. They were all about to be hanged that very morning for committing the most heinous crimes imaginable. He walked with each of the ten condemned men from their cell to the gallows having a conversation along the way. He knew them well. When the rope was put around their necks, they were each asked if they had any last words. The first, Joachim von Ribbentrop said, I place all of my confidence in the lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Jarek and said, I'll see you again. The black hood was pulled over his face, the 13-coiled noose was put around his neck, and he dropped through the trap door to his death. Up until he was captured, he served as the foreign minister for Adolf Hitler. In the book War and Grace, it was said that Jarek led eight Nazi war criminals, including Joachim, to faith in Jesus Christ while he served as a chaplain at their prison. He began a church there for these men, a small congregation, and of these men, it was said that the, the crimes that they had committed against humanity were greater and more heinous than any in human history except for the ancient Egyptians. And what do you think happened to Jarek when he returned home to America, having led these men to Christ and leading this small congregation of Nazi criminals. Do you think his Christian brothers and sisters said, well done, bringing those men the message of hope and grace and life and mercy? Instead, he was met with vicious abuse and violent threats. He became the target of such threats that they had to protect him for 
his dying days. And after he died, his oldest son found a pile of letters stored in a secret compartment in his father's desk. All of them hate mail. Filled with anger and every slanderous name you could think of at the time. A Jew hater, a Nazi lover, somebody who deserved to die right alongside all of those men. It leads me to a question that will lead to our text this morning. What does Christian courage look like? What does Christian courage look like? What does it mean to be courageous for Jesus Christ? And ultimately, we'll see from his life, his example, what this means. This is the final week of this series. We've been looking at values that define the life of Jesus, and these same values are meant to shape our lives and the life of our church family as well. We've called them core values. And today we focused on the last one, to live courageously. The idea is very simple. The call of God on our lives, it requires courage. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ in 2017, even within American evangelicalism, it requires courage. We're going to see what that looks like as we walk through the text together. And we'll see that Christian courage is demonstrated through this story, through what is happening in the life of Christ here, in three ways, three ways that we can imitate, three ways that we can follow. Here's the first. A courageous disciple, that simply means follower, moves towards unavoidable adversity. Think about the words in this phrase, moves towards unavoidable adversity. Look at verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. I hope you have your Bible open and you can follow along these verses with me. It says this, Luke the historian in his evangelistic letter, he writes, when the days drew near for him, referring to Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that is the phrase that's been haunting me all week. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Up to this point, Luke has told us about Jesus' birth, his preparation for ministry, and then his ministry in an area called Galilee. He gives example after example of Jesus' teaching and power over nature, over demonic oppression, over diseases, over sickness. But now there's a turn. Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He, he begins to tell us about this journey that would put Jesus in Jerusalem for the divine appointment he had with death. This journey to Jerusalem had to take place. He knew it, and he didn't try to get out of it. That's why he said, if we go back in that chapter a little bit to verse 22, he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And likewise, in verse 44, let these words, he says to his disciples, sink into your ears. He's basically saying, you haven't been, you haven't been capturing what I've been saying, and I want this to sink in, let it sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew that God the Father sent him to bring what Luke, in his gospel, and really throughout the Bible, is referred to as the year of the Lord's favor. It was blessing. It was a message of life. 
And it was a message available to Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, simply people who were not Jews. To the rich and poor, men and women, social outcasts and elites, to everyone, all of mankind. And the year of the Lord's favor could only be brought to his people when darkness and the shadow of death fell on the Son of God. That was the inauguration of the year of the Lord's favor. It was the fulfillment of this promise. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, it says, He came, Jesus came, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's all of humanity. And by sitting in darkness himself and receiving the shadow of death and death itself in his flesh, he knew he had to make a stop in Jerusalem. It wasn't a tourist stop. It wasn't to go there and see the sights and just behold this massive temple that had been built by Herod. It was beautiful and extravagant. It wasn't to bring sacrifices and simply celebrate Passover. It was to stop there to weep and die. And he set his face towards the city. In Luke 19, verse 41, it tells us that when Jesus drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jerusalem, the city, would not know what peace looked like from that day forward. It was just 40 years later that the city was completely destroyed by the Romans. And yet, the city itself in Luke's gospel and really throughout the scriptures is the geographical and theological epicenter for God's plans with humanity. It's all over the place. This is the place where God works through his plan of redemption over and over again. We see it within the gospel itself. So let me just show you this trajectory. Luke begins his gospel in the temple in Jerusalem with Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father. No other gospel begins this way. His gospel begins right here, ground zero in Jerusalem with the priest Zechariah. In Luke, he spends about 10 chapters of his time from chapter 10 to chapter 19 with the travel narrative. It's basically Jesus' journey then, that's what we're starting with here today, journey towards Jerusalem. 10 chapters, it's unique material. You don't find it in the other gospels. No other gospel writes these things. Luke's very last sentence after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, has the disciples in Jerusalem, praising God in the temple with great joy. So the whole gospel begins in Jerusalem, goes out to Galilee, and then has Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem to fulfill the plan of God. Now, if you know of Luke, he wrote another book, a sequel, called the book of Acts. And where do you think that book starts? With his disciples in Jerusalem. That's where they go. And then they will go out from there, fulfilling Jesus' mission to the world from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem's not only just talked about within the gospel, it's everywhere. You go all the way back to the first book of the scriptures, the book of Genesis. You find it there when Abraham was commanded to take his son Isaac, his only son of promise, to a mountain and sacrifice him, a very disturbing text. And yet that mountain... That is the same mountain the temple was on. It is Jerusalem. And so we find it there. And yet that whole event with Abraham, when God eventually offers him this this ram in the thicket, it's a foreshadow of the Son of God who would one day offer himself for the sins of the world. 
At the very end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 21, it talks about a new Jerusalem. What's the point? The point is that God's plan required that the Messiah had to come and die in Jerusalem. But from that very same place of death, the kingdom of God would begin to explode and go out into all the earth. Why is that so significant? Well, Jesus knew this. That's what shocks me. He knew this, and yet he set his face to Jerusalem. That's a courageous posture. If we were in his shoes, what would our temptation be to do? Go in the opposite direction, wait, maybe think and pray that God might have some other way. His closest friends tried to keep him from going. In Matthew chapter 16, it said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. All the suffering that's been talked about, all those things that you've been discussing, that shall not happen with you. If you go to Jerusalem, we'll go there for victory. We'll go there for other reasons. Or maybe we shouldn't go at all. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. How would you like it if Jesus called you Satan? Why did he call him Satan? The next sentence tells us, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're telling me I ought to go away from God's purposes for my life instead of to them. And I know that there's adversity if I walk towards them, but it's unavoidable. I have to go. Any other words, any other sentiments, any other advice is opposed to the will of God. And if it's opposed to the will of God, it's consistent with the will of Satan. When I think about that statement then, he set his face on Jerusalem. I have to ask myself, why would someone do that, knowing what was to come? Why would he do this? The Bible makes it very clear, friends, he did it because he loves you. Because he loves you. He knew what would happen, the opposition, the mockery, the torture, the slow and painful death. And I just want you to know this morning, if you're exploring the Christian faith, you need to know that at the center of the faith stands a man, a God-man, who sat in darkness and slept in death in order to offer you light and life. That's why he set his face there. He absorbed your darkness, your sin your death, to give you light and life and salvation. God's purposes for Jesus' life meant that he had to move. He had to move towards unavoidable adversity. And if you are serious about God's purpose for your life, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you will also have to move towards unavoidable adversity. There's adversity, certainly, that can and should be avoided, We don't go looking for suffering. It's just foolishness. We don't go looking for it. When somebody says he's looking for trouble, that's not a compliment. It's like when you see a chihuahua provoking the German shepherd. Like, what are you thinking? It's just not wise. I'm convinced that that's what happens when you breed dogs for so many years. They just become that dumb. But 
It's just not wise. But the Christian life will be filled with adversity. So let me ask the question again. What does it mean to have courage as a Christian? It means moving towards unavoidable adversity. Secondly, a courageous disciple shows compassion to all people. And this is where it'll start to strike us pretty, pretty hard. Look at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him there in Samaria because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now remember, the Samaritans were Jews, historically, who had intermarried, which was against their law, with the Assyrians hundreds of years earlier when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds, compromised, apostates. And the Samaritans even built their own temple on their own mount and set up their own form of worship. This is why the parable that we looked at a few weeks ago, the Good Samaritan, was such a shock to them, because no Jew would consider a Samaritan good. It was, it was a statement that didn't even make sense to them. So here's James and John, and they come to the Samaritan village. They grew up having animosity towards this people, and the Samaritans reject Jesus and their message and what he's about. So they become furious, and they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Remember the nickname of James and John? Anybody know it? Sons of Thunder. Sounds like World Wrestling Federation, tag team. This is classic 1990s fodder. And so these guys were apparently kind of rough and tough. And it's fascinating when you think about the trajectory of John, the Apostle John, who would say, Lord, can you just wipe out this whole town? And then just a few decades later, he is known as the Apostle of Love. How does someone change from a son of thunder to the apostle of love? Jesus. This kind of training is what changes him. So he says this. He says, with his brother, would you just call it down? And they, they'd seen the power of Christ. They knew he had the authority to do something like this. And they want to see the village wiped out. They were probably thinking about the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah from the Old Testament had called down fire on the troops of Ahaziah and he was an apostate, rebellious king of Israel, and that's exactly what happened. Fire came down and consumed them. So they're thinking, do it again. Do it again. This is what God will do. God will show them who really is in charge. Jesus' response, okay, you got it. Stand back, right? No. Jesus rebukes them. Someone greater than Elijah had come. And he had come to bring not fire from heaven to consume God's enemies, but fire from the Holy Spirit to save God's enemies. Do you see the shift? The disciples has not, had not grasped the essence of the ministry of Jesus. They did not grasp that Jesus was bringing the year of the Lord's favor. 
His favor, the gospel, a message of hope and life for the worst of sinners. They had not internalized his teaching to love your enemies, to be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Friends, this is a hard teaching for the human heart, isn't it? And here we learn something crucial, and I would say very opposite our culture crucial about gospel courage. I'd like to call it something different, actually. I'd like to call it cross-shaped courage. Cross-shaped courage is filled with compassion for all people. Cross-shaped courage is filled with compassion for all people. The dictionary definition of courage defines it this way. The quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficulty, danger, or pain without fear. This is the definition that applies to James and John's courage here in the text. They faced the difficulty of rejection by the Samaritan village without fear. So the courage passed, their courage here passed the test for how cultures in general define courage, but it did not pass the test of how Jesus defines courage. Jesus gives you the ability to face difficulty without fear, but also with compassion for everyone involved. Huge change. We often extend compassion to victims, but not to perpetrators. Was it wrong for the Samaritan village to reject Jesus? Yeah, big mistake. But Jesus says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Is it wrong for a banker to embezzle funds? Yeah, and he or she should face justice. But in our hearts, we should not demonize them. We should seek their good. Is it wrong for a rapist to rape? Yes, and yes, we should seek justice. But we should pray for their soul and that their twisted view of humanity would be changed. Is it wrong for a government leader to kill his own people with chemical weapons? Yes, but we should pray for him, not want to do the same. What do you think? Is it possible? Repentant Nazis in Henry Jarek's church? Forgiven dictators? Redeemed ISIS assassins? Saved rapists? In our minds, we say, after all, there are sinners, lowercase s, and there are sinners, capital S, and we all know the difference. There's sinners, and there's sinners. Of course, no one is righteous, not even one, so we we put ourselves into the sinners category, but we're not a sinner. There's a difference. Maybe it bothers you that people like these could be, will be saved sitting right next to you in heaven. What do you think of that? It's been said this way, extreme expressions of redemption. Extreme expressions of redemption, of salvation, often arouse extreme reactions of resentment. Sometimes I think for those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, 
we believe that sometimes maybe God can be too compassionate. (laughs) Too compassionate. And yet this is what we find in the life of Jesus. Jesus' life was an extreme expression of redemption, and it aroused an extreme reaction of resentment. So Jesus says, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those who do good to you, and lend to those who pay you back, what good is it? If you just love the people who are in your circle, who are part of your family, who bring a better life for you, who make life more comfortable for you, who can bring you some kind of love or give you something in return, for what you're giving to them, what good is it? That's just human nature. That's just being a normal human being. And Jesus says, so what? The challenge of the gospel is for our courage to be shaped by the cross. And if it is, if we realize that our sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, put Jesus on the cross, then we will have mercy and compassion towards all people and we'll realize there's not sinners and sinners, there's just sinners. There's just sinners. And the worst evil lurks in all of our hearts. There's just sinners. we will realize it takes cross-shaped courage to love those who look different from us, believe different from us, live different from us, forgive our enemies, forgive those who have hurt us in relationships and our family and our marriages with our children, to forgive our enemies or those who hurt us financially or otherwise. What does it mean to have courage as a Christian? It means moving towards unavoidable adversity. It means showing compassion to all people. Let us never separate ever compassion and courage. They are linked in the life of Christ. Thirdly, a courageous disciple makes Jesus their first priority. Jesus' movement towards Jerusalem continues and Luke brings us to this issue of commitment. He highlights three quick exchanges. I'll walk through them with us here that Jesus had with these would-be disciples. The first one is someone who says to him in verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. So these are conversations that Jesus had on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Of course... Jesus did have a place to lay his head, Peter's house in Capernaum, his family's house in Nazareth, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house in in Bethany. His point is that when you enter into his company, when you choose to place your faith in him, when you enter into his ranks, into his fold, into his family, you become a stranger in exile here on earth. That's what it means to enter into the family of God. This man along the road was too quick to sign himself up to follow Jesus. And so Jesus turns to him and says, do you know what lies ahead in your future? He said, rejection, it awaits you. Discomfort, it awaits you. The discomfort of forgiving those who wrong you. The discomfort of giving beyond your ability. The discomfort of standing up for truth when the culture says you're just a bigot. The discomfort of feeling homeless in your very own home. Are you really ready for that? So Jesus questions him. 
And so often I think the conversation of Christianity and discipleship within our cultural context, I just have to speak truth to our church family because it's this important of an item this morning. We have made the bar for Christianity far too low. Jesus did not say, I will bring you salvation so that your life on earth will be simple and easy and blessed and full of financial gain. That is a false gospel. He said that we will be saved for eternity and experience rejection while here. Like who? Like him. Is that what you signed up for? It's hard for us. Sometimes people might say, well, are you saying then that having nice things, God blessing my company, my job is, no, none of that is wrong. (laughs) Certainly give all the praise and glory to God. There's nothing wrong with that. That is his good blessing upon your life. But to assume that that is the consequence of your salvation is not consistent with biblical truth. He brings blessing, but he doesn't promise it in this life. And so the first one didn't weigh the options deep enough. Jesus rebukes him. The second would-be disciple is someone Jesus calls. Look at verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. I have another priority here. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Sounds pretty harsh. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The man's request is legitimate. It would have been disgraceful if a Jewish son failed to bury his own parents. Why does Jesus give him this reply? Jesus, does he have something against parents? No. Against burial obligations? No. What's his point? When comparing burying one's parents and proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will be the priority hands down every time. That's his point. Jesus was not just speaking in hyperbole here. He was rather causing a radical shift in priorities to take place at the heart level of those who said they were followers of him. What Jesus asks is above what any rabbi in his right mind would ever dare to ask. He's asking for us to make him our first priority. And this is why the gospel in our culture that says, just receive Jesus and then you can kind of live how you want. He'll be your friend then. Just, just receive them. Let them come into your life, and, and, and now that part of your life is settled. But, but, you know, he forgives you from all the other stuff, and so you can kind of live however, however you want. So, so give him a piece. Give him a room. Give him a slice. Friends, he's not a piece of our lives. He is life. He is life. And any life found outside of Christ, if, you have not, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've been trying to seek fulfillment, you already know this deep in your heart, that it's left unfulfilled, that it hasn't worked out, that it never satisfies. He is life. He, he doesn't ask for a slice of our life. He asks for all of our heart. Finally, the last man says, look at verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
This one wants to go back and say goodbye to his family, another reasonable request. When God enlists you, though, to his service, not even your family is meant to distract you from his call. Do you see how Jesus is reconfiguring the family of God around himself? He's saying your family ties, even, are secondary to the new family of God that I've called you into. He's saying, if there are priorities that are placed above my kingdom in your life, you are not fit for my kingdom. I couldn't help but feel the heaviness of this text this week. We'll be celebrating next Sunday for sure. But as I thought about this text, I couldn't couldn't help but feel the weight of it. And so I couldn't communicate it in some soft way. That's not the way Jesus intended it to be. And so we have to ask ourselves, there is no way around it. Disciples of Jesus make Jesus their first priority. There's no other answer. There's no other option. The call of God on our lives requires courage. I hope you see this. When Jesus calls us, he's calling us into a movement, a movement of a spirit, a movement where whole communities, and that's our prayer, whole communities are transformed by the power of the gospel. He calls us to walk in a certain direction with a certain purpose, and it takes courage, cross-shaped courage. Do you picture Jesus' call on your life as if it were something static? It's ironic to me, I was driving in to church this morning and I'm thinking about this text and Jesus setting his face to his death and I'm driving down a beautiful road on mound past farms and golf courses into a very comfortable, wonderful church family with friends and people I love where we can get our coffee and our kids get to hunt for Easter eggs and they get to hear about the gospel And we get to sit in this nice soft room and the lights are soft. It's so comfortable. Sometimes people's eyes just close. I don't know if it's the lights or my voice or what, but it's just so different sometimes than I think about Jesus setting his gaze on Jerusalem. 25 Christians in a Coptic church in Egypt were blown up this morning. Read it on the way in. So our life seems so different. And so sometimes we can think, well, what does it mean for me then to live with courage? Jesus calls us to stand up and take risks, not stand still. Maybe for you, it's the call to go into ministry and the courage and discipline you will need to train yourself to serve the church. Maybe it's the call to go to another country and proclaim Christ where he has not been named. Maybe it's the call to proclaim Christ where you work. Maybe it takes great courage not to hide your faith or water down your commitment to Jesus when everyone around you is swimming in the opposite direction, but it will take courage. Are you following God's call on your life or have you, like one of these three, been thinking, you know, I know you've asked me to do something, but let me first finish. Let me first go and let me make sure that everything's set up. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then I'll follow. The call of God on your life requires cross-shaped courage, a courage demonstrated most excellently in Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday, 
as we close is the day we remember Jesus making it to Jerusalem. He made it there. It's the day he entered into the city and it began his final week of life and he knew exactly what awaited him. In a few days, while he was being nailed to the cross, even then, he demonstrates his courage. Did it take courage to go to Jerusalem? Yes. To go to the cross? Yes. How about to say to those who are nailing your hands into the wood, forgive them? They know not what they do. Jesus doesn't call us to do something that he didn't do first. He has saved us into a family defined by a compassionate and loving courage, a cross-shaped courage. I hope we have the strength through the Spirit to live the same. Father, thank you for this day and for your word. Father, it's impossible to preach this story, this text, in a lighthearted manner. Because in it we see your son who was dead set on his journey to Jerusalem. There would be nothing to detour him. There would be no temptation that would cause him to turn his gaze in another direction. He knew your call. He knew your plan. He knew your purpose. And he went for love. So that we might be saved through his death. I pray that if there are any here exploring this faith, exploring Christianity, that they would understand that our Savior, our Lord, our King was your Son who willingly gave up himself for our sin. And he did so. He entered darkness. He entered death so that we might have light and life eternal. Father, I pray that if there be any here today that need to receive him, that even in these moments they would receive him into their hearts saying, I believe this is true. And Father, for those of us who have disciples, help us to remember that this calling that we've been given, we have incredible blessing around us we await naps on Sunday afternoons and golf tournaments and food. And yet, Father, this calling that you've given us, this is not heaven. This is the place for us to do your work, to proclaim your kingdom, to see people brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We, your people, are given that task. May we take it seriously. May we demonstrate it with cross-shaped courage, filled with compassion, filled with resolve, without fear. Even as we think about Easter Sunday, even as we invest in friends, in relationships, extend invitations, that, Father, you would help us to live out our faith in this culture with courage. We pray for our world. We pray for our Egyptian brothers and sisters. We pray for Syria and Russia and North Korea. Father, we want to see souls saved. Help us to have your compassion and courage. And help us to remember that Jesus 
is the author of all of this, the exemplary. He's the example for all of us to see. He's the cornerstone. It's in his name we pray.